Robles had come to hunting as an adult, joining an elk hunt as a 30th birthday goof, only to be overwhelmed by its emotional power. For the past five years, he'd hunted a half dozen times annually. Odell was a rancher's daughter. Her father owned 20 square miles of South Dakota, and she'd joined the annual antelope hunt when she was eight. During her college years at Smith, when the other girls had gone to Ivy League football games, she'd flown home for the shooting. Bone was from Mississippi. He'd learned to hunt as a child because he wanted to eat. Only MacDonald disdained the hunt. He'd shot deer in the past. He was a Minnesota male, and males of a certain class were expected to do that. But he considered the hunt a pain. At the club, they'd be playing some serious gin, drinking some serious gin. And here he was, about to climb a tree. God damn it, he said aloud. What? the chairman grunted. Nothing. Stray thought, MacDonald said. They pushed out into the trees. Fifty yards from the cabin, Odell switched on her headlamp, and the chairman turned on a hand flash. Dawn was an hour away, but the sky was clear. Great night, Bone said. A small lake lay just downslope from the cabin. They followed a shoreline trail for a hundred and fifty yards, moved single file up a ridge and continued still parallel to the lake. The ridge separated the lake and a tamarack swamp. Fifty yards further on, Robles said, I guess this is me, and turned off to the left toward the swamp. He said, Good luck, guys, and disappeared down a narrow trail toward his tree stand. The chairman of the board was next. Another path broke to the left toward the swamp, and he took it, saying, See you. Get the buck, said Odell, and MacDonald, Odell, and Bone continued on. The chairman switched on his flash and followed the narrow beam forty-five yards down a gentle slope to the edge of the swamp. One stumpy bur oak stood at the boundary of the swamp. The chairman took out a nylon parachute cord, looped it around his rifle sling, leaned the rifle against the tree and began climbing the foot spikes. The chairman clambered into the stand fifteen feet up the tree and settled into the bench. The stand looked like a suburban deck with a two-by-four railing that served as a gun rest. The chairman slipped off his pack hung it from a spike to his right, and pulled the rifle up with the parachute cord. The cartridges were still warm from his pocket as he loaded the rifle. That wouldn't last long. Temperatures were in the teens with an icy wind. The chairman half-dozed as he sat in the tree waiting for first light. He woke once more to the sound of a deer. The animal settled on the hillside behind him. Now that was interesting. Forty or fifty yards away, no more, still up on the ridge, but it should be visible after sunrise if it moved again. If it didn't, he'd kick it out on the way back to the cabin. He sat waiting. The chairman sighed. So much to do. The killer was dressed in blaze orange and moving quietly and quickly along the track. Dawn was not far away and the window of opportunity could be measured in minutes. Here... Now, twenty-four steps down the track. One, two, three. Twenty-three, twenty-four. A tree here to the left. Wish I could use a light. The oak tree was there, and just to the right, a little hollow in the ground behind a fallen aspen. Just get down here, quietly, quietly. Did he hear me? These leaves sound like I'm walking on cornflakes. Where's that log? Must be right here. Must be. Ah. From the nest in the ground, the fallen aspen was at exactly the right height for a rifle rest. A quick glance through the scope. 
Nothing but a dark disk. What time? 6.17. Okay, settle down. And listen. If anybody comes, may have to shoot. There'd be only one run at this. There were other people nearby, and they were armed. If someone else came along and saw the orange coat crouched in the hole... If they came while it was dark, maybe I could run, hide. But maybe if they thought I was a deer, they'd shoot at me. What then? No. If someone comes, I'd take the shot then, whoever it is. Two shots are okay. It wouldn't look like an accident anymore. But at least there wouldn't be a witness. What's that? Who's there? Somebody? The killer strained to hear, but the only sounds were the dry leaves shaking in the wind. Check the watch. Getting close now. Nobody moving. I'm okay. Have to think about the old man. If he's there at the cabin, I'll have to take him. And if his wife's there, have to take her. That's okay. They're old. Still nothing in the scope. Where's the sun? Daniel S. Kresge was the chairman of the board, president, and the chief executive officer of the Polaris Bank System, 250 banks spread across six Midwestern states, all wrapped in his cost-cutting fist. If everything went exactly right, he would hold his job for another 15 months, when Polaris would be folded into Midland Holding, owner of 600 banks. There would be some casualties. The combined bank's central administration would be in Fort Worth, not many Polaris executives would make the move. In fact, the whole central administrative section would eventually disappear, along with much of top management. Bone would probably land on his feet. His investments division was one of the main profit centers at Polaris. Odell ran the retail end of Polaris. Midland would need somebody who knew the territory, so she could wind up as the number two or three person in Midland's retail division. Would she take it? Kresge was not sure. Robles would hang on for a while. A pure technician, he ran data services for Polaris, and Midland would need him to help integrate the Polaris and Midland data systems. McDonald was dead meat. Mortgage divisions didn't make much anymore, and Midland already had a mortgage division which they were trying to dump. Kresge turned the thought of the casualties in his head, and the people Midland would need. Robles, for sure. Probably Odell and Bone. McDonald? Fuck him. Kresge would lose his job with the rest of them. Unlike the others, he'd walk with something in the range of an after-tax $40 million, and he'd be free. In two weeks, Kresge would sit in a courtroom and solemnly swear that his marriage was irretrievably broken. His wife had agreed not to seek alimony. In return for that concession, she'd demanded, and he'd agreed to give her, better than 75% of their joint assets, $8 million. Letting go of the eight million had been one of the hardest things he'd ever done. But it was worth it. There'd be no strings on him. His ex wouldn't get a nickel of the new money. He smiled as he thought about it. Forty million. He knew what he'd do with it. He'd leave the Twin Cities behind first thing. He was tired of the cold. Move out to L.A. and live a little. The last few minutes crawled by. Ten minutes before the season opened. The forest was still gray. In the next few minutes, it seemed to grow miraculously brighter. Then he heard a single distant shot. Another shot followed a minute later. Then two or three shots. Hunters jumping the gun. He glanced at his watch. Two minutes. 
Through the scope, the target looked like an oversized pumpkin, 15 or 20 feet up the tree. The killer could see his back, but not the face. The crosshairs of the low-power scope caressed the target's spine, and the killer's finger lay lightly on the trigger. Gotta be him. Damn, this light can't see. Turn your head. Look at me. There we go. Keep turning. Keep turning. Thirty seconds before the season opened, the crackle of gunfire became general. Nothing too close, though, Kresge thought. What about the deer that had settled off to his left? He turned on the bench and looked that way. In the last few seconds of his life, Daniel S. Kresge saw the blaze orange jacket, then the face. He recognized the killer and thought, what the hell? Then the face moved down and he realized that the dark circle below the hood was the scope. And the scope was pointed his way. So the barrel... Ah, Jesus. Jesus went through Kresge's mind at the same instant the bullet punched through his heart. The chairman of the board spun off the bench, feeling nothing at all, his rifle falling to the ground. He knelt for a moment at the railing, then his back buckled, and he fell under the railing after the rifle. He saw the ground coming, hit it face first with a thump, and his neck broke. He bounced onto his back, his eyes still open. The stars were gone. He never felt the hand looking for a pulse. He would lie there for a while, head downhill with Daniel S. Kresge, a hole in his chest. Nobody would run to see what the gunshot was about. There would be no calls to 911, no snoops. Just another day on the hunt. A real bad day for the chairman of the board. A disheveled Dell Capslock stumbled out of the men's room in the basement of City Hall, fumbling with the buttons on the fly of his jeans. Footsteps echoed behind him, and he turned to see Sloan coming through the gloom. Sloan was neatly but colorlessly dressed in khaki slacks and a tan mountain...